you guys want to grab a Bible, our sermon uh, this morning is going to be in Psalm 1. Psalm 1. Uh, we are starting a new series. Uh, so Pastor Santo and I will be preaching uh, different uh, sermon series as we get up uh, on Sundays to preach. Uh, mine will be coming from the book of Psalms. And uh, Santo will start with the book of Philemon and then move into the book of Job. Okay, so we're going to get kind of a splattering of Old Testament books of the Bible, which will be good for us. Kind of a, um, a diverse diet, as it were, of, of God's Word. So uh, for, for many people throughout church history, the book of Psalms has been just a wonderful devotional book. Uh, it has informed the way that we worship. It's informed the way that we communicate with God, the way that we pray. And it's a wonderful book for us to study. And uh, what I'm going to be doing is to give you a little bit of background and context. Um, is uh, I'm going to be going through one psalm of each of the major genres of psalms that we find in the book of Psalms. So there are 150 psalms in the book of Psalms. And uh, there are different types. So there's things like wisdom psalms or psalms of thanksgiving. Song, psalms of lament. Uh, maybe uh, also psalms of, um, that are called royal psalms or kingly psalms. And so I'm going to take one of each and then uh, use them throughout the rest of the year in our sermon series. So as we begin, why don't we stand and we are going to read God's word, his holy and timely word to us. Psalm 1, it's only uh, six short verses. So here now, God's holy and inerrant word. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither, Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the ways of the righteous, but the ways of the wicked will perish. Let me take a seat. We know that many times in our life, we are forced to make a decision between two opposite paths. Two opposite paths in our life. Maybe two very different choices that we must kind of make a, a, a pathway through. As I was preparing for Psalm 1, uh, me and Santo and Dave were talking about some famous quotes that talk about this idea of deciding between two paths. Let me give a few quotes for us. The first one is this. Two roads diverge in a wood. And I, I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. Robert Frost. Well, I'm sure we've all heard of this one. It's my way or the highway. highway. My way or the highway. One that Santo brought up uh, from a movie called Tombstone. Fights commence. Get to fighting or get away. Another one, Fisher cut bait. Take it or leave it. All these quotes, what they do is they embrace the idea of making a decision 
right here, right now, between two obvious choices, maybe very different choices. But what, what Psalm 1 does for us is it tells us about two very different ways of life, two very different paths, and yet calls us to a decision. So as we study Psalm 1 this morning, we are going to see that because Christ is our perfect righteousness, we are to walk in the ways of the righteous, meditating on God's word day and night. And so let's dive into these two very different ways of living. The ways of, on the one hand, the righteous, and then on the other hand, the wicked. The ways of the righteous and the ways of the wicked. So there's a very stark contrast between these two groups of people. And this is seen inside of Psalm 1 through many different poetic features, okay? So things like similes, or metaphors, or wordplay, or repetition, or things being said in a different way. Many of the Psalms, they express their truth in this type of language. Poetry is a very powerful tool for us as humans to communicate very powerful and potent truths in small spaces. It's an economy of words, as it were. It's compact, it's easily memorized, and yet it makes us think deeply about what is being said. That's why poetry has been used all over the world from all different types of civilizations and cultures and peoples because of this power. The majority of Psalm 1, this poem of Psalm 1, is geared toward the righteous, geared toward the Christian, you and I. But there's another group here that we speak of, that the psalmist speaks of, which is the wicked, and that's the one that we're going to look at first. Look verse 1, for example. Three verbs are used. Walks, sits, and stands. These three verbs speak of the ways of the wicked's life their conduct, their way of living, what they do day in, day out, as if we were to follow them for a day and see how they live out their lives. They, just like you and me, once walked, but now don't anymore, but they walk and listen to ungodly wisdom, the text says. Their actions are the opposite of what we see laid out for us in God's Word. They hate God's Word. They don't like God's word. They, they go against God's word. They say it is foolishness. It's nonsense. It's outdated. It's contradictory. And so on and so on. That's the way that the wicked see God's counsel and his wisdom. Not only that, but they are scoffers and mockers of the things of God. They don't just say, I don't believe in that. That's okay for you. No, they say that is foolishness. That's silly. Why would you give your life to this God? When the psalmist searches for a picture to paint, for the reader, he uses the idea of chaff. Chaff that, is, that can't stand up against the wind. Chaff is a small byproduct of wheat that falls easily to the ground, that the wind blows away. Just like if we were to go for a walk on the beach like we did yesterday. And you see the grains of sand, how easily they are taken by the wind to and fro. The same is true for the wicked. They have no anchor, no stability. 
They cannot stand up. They are tossed to and fro. One commentator says that the metaphor of chaff reveals both the uselessness of the wicked and the ease with which God will deal with them. That they are useless. And that God will deal with them just like the wind takes that piece of sand and throws it all over the beach. So it will be with the wicked. But you may be asking yourself or thinking to yourself, well, a lot of times as I view the wicked in this world, they seem like the ones that are the powerful ones. They seem like the ones that have it all under control. They have everything that they want, everything that they could need. The odds, it feels like, of defeating them would be like a million to one. I thought about this sentiment being expressed in a song by John Mayer, and the song is Waiting on the World to Change. And in this song, what he says is, he says, not that we don't care, but we know that the fight's not fair. So we just keep waiting, waiting for the world to change. Sometimes we may feel like that, waiting, waiting for the wicked to get what they deserve. But what God says here is that the wicked are not this indestructible, powerful figure. They are this thing that is weak, that he will deal with in his time, that he has a plan for them. Their fate is sure. But on the other hand, we see another group of people, which is the righteous. The righteous. And we're going to look at their ways. For example, we have seen in the wicked person that there are things that they do. They scoff, they mock, they don't believe, they hate the things of God. So first here, we see that there are things that the Christian does not do. For example, the Christian does not walk in the ways or the counsel of the wicked, like verse 1. Right? So we don't go down to the boardwalk and look for counsel in a psychic or a tarot card reading. We don't go looking to other secular psychologists or sources to help us to understand our lives. We go to God. We go to His Word, His counsel instead. And so there are certain things that the Christian does do. Verse 2. His delight is on the law of the Lord. And on this law he meditates day and night. See, the term law is used in very many different ways throughout Scripture. Here it's basically just meaning God's Word, right? As we look at, where's the Bible? As we look at the Bible, right? This is God's Word. That's what the law means here. This is the source and the object of the Christian's delight. See, when we are in right perspective, we don't see studying God's Word as something we just got to get up and do. Just a ta another task that we have to check off on the to-do list. We see it as a delight. And that's convicting for me. I don't know if it's convicting for you. Because when I ask myself, do I see God's Word as a delight? Many times I have to answer, no. It's just something I know that I need to do. But here, God corrects me. God corrects us and says, no, God's word is meant to be something that we enjoy, that we look forward to, that when we wake up, we say, God, I can't wait to get in your word. When we go to bed, I can't wait to get in your word. That is the attitude of the believer that we are to have. I want to encourage you, if you have some time, to go back to Psalm 19 today. And read it. It's a very short psalm, but it's a psalm that talks specifically about God's Word. It uses 
uh, so many uh, uh, rich metaphors and similes to describe the beauty and the desirability of God's word, saying it's sweeter than honey. It's more desirable than the most money that we can ever get in this world, than gold. That's God's word. But loving God's word is not a passive thing. It's not something that just can happen by osmosis, right? Or just by sitting there, you know, putting the Bible right next to us, so somehow I'm going to get some of it in me. No, it's something that I actually active, actively have to do. i got to open God's Word. i got to study God's Word. i got to take time to do that. It's something that we meditate on. I don't know what comes to mind when you guys think about meditation. Maybe you guys think about uh, doing yoga, or maybe you guys think about uh, a Buddhist that's sitting there trying to clear their mind of anything to a place of emptiness. This is not what the, the biblical version of meditation is. Biblical meditation is thinking on something, thinking on someone, namely God, that we would set our mind for a prolonged period of time on God's Word, on God Himself as He speaks to us through the Bible. That's why, for example, scripture memory is such an important thing in the Christian's life. Why do I take time to write those cards that no one ever uses, right? Myself included. It's because it's so important for us to meditate on God's Word. It's our lifeline. It's our nourishment as Christians. If we don't have it, we will be anemic spiritually. Unfed. Unnourished. But notice what the, the time frame here, the scriptures give about this idea of meditation. It says day and night. Day and night. It's something that should encompass our day-to-day, -day, the whole of our lives. It's not just something that we have wake up and have a morning quiet time, and then we've done our God thing for the day, we can move on to everything else. No, God wants the whole day, not just a piece of the day. God wants us to be thinking about Him, about His Word, <coughs> all throughout the course of our day. See, as a young dad, I was forced to do this, right? Because as a young dad, which many of you guys can remember, um, I, I had babies and, and, and small kids that were demanding a lot from me. They were waking me up throughout the middle of the night, and I was tired when the morning came, okay? And I had to maybe sometimes get up early and take care of the baby so Katie could sleep in late or vice versa. And so our, our kind of routine of quiet time and devotional times kind of went out the window. And we were just forced to get little bits and pieces wherever we could of thinking on God's word and a time to pray or a time to listen to a sermon or something or a song that would be encouraging us to think about God's word. We were forced to spread that throughout the day. And yet I'm thankful because God reminded me, look, Peter, it's not just a thing that you do in the morning. It's not a thing that you do in the evening. It's a thing that you do throughout your whole entire day. See, when we love something, we take time to delight it. When we love something, we take time to delight it. Think about a husband and a wife. When a husband loves his wife, he takes time to learn about her. He takes time to study her, to learn what she likes and what she doesn't like, what gets her mad, what gets her happy, how he can serve her and love her better same is true of the Christian. And we do that through studying God's Word and meditating on it day and night. 
So in Psalm 1, we've seen so far two very different ways of life. We've seen the ways of the wicked, who are in opposition to God, and then we see the ways of the righteous, who love the things of God and are trying to follow Him. But these two ways have very different outcomes. And that's what we're looking at now, the outcomes of their way of life. First, the outcome of the wicked's way of life. We've already seen that the wicked, they're like chaff that the wind drives away. And the psalmist, he goes on further to say in verse 5, look there with me. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Verse 6 goes on, but the way of the wicked will perish. Will perish. So the wicked, they may walk in their sinful ways. They may boast and be prideful that they are walking in these ways. Like we said earlier, they may seem like in this world that they are the ones who have it all together. They have all the material blessings, all the, the things that we could ever want. Maybe all the nice houses and cars and toys and jobs that we all envy. And we say, what's going on? How can they experience such blessings if they're walking in ways opposite to God? Yet what, what Psalm 1 does here is tells us their end and tells us their fate. Their fate is that they will not stand in the judgment. They will not stand in the assembly of the righteous. That they will perish. Listen to this quote by John Calvin. It's, it's really good. It says this. At the same time, we must maintain it as a general truth that the ungodly are devoted to misery, for their own consciences condemn them for their wickedness. And as often as they are summoned to give an account of their life, their sleep is broken, and they perceive that they were merely dreaming when they imagined themselves to be happy without looking into the true state of their heart. And when, when they actually have to give an account of their lives, they realize it was all a dream. That success, that wealth, that pleasure, it was all a dream. It may sound harsh, but it's meant to be sobering. It's meant to be a warning. It's meant to be a warning to the people of the earth that the ways of the wicked are not all they're cracked up to be. Don't fall for that nonsense that the world gives us day in and day out through its songs and its music and its, and its uh, movies, news medias, whatever it may be. Watch out. Well, in a very different way, we see the outcome of the ways of the righteous. Verse 6 says this, the Lord knows the ways of the righteous. The Lord knows the ways of the righteous. Commentators talk about this word to know. It speaks of a deep and intimate knowledge of God to his people. It says that he really cares deeply for you and I. He knows our heart behind our actions. He knows our actions. He knows our hearts. He knows our motivations. It's not like just a, a knowledge of like an acquaintance, for example, right? I can say, for example, that I know the mayor of Atlantic 
City. I met him once at a party. We had a conversation. But again, I don't know that much about him. He's not a friend of mine, per se. I don't know what he likes, what he dislikes, all those kind of things I talk about with a husband and a wife. No. But here, God knows his children. He knows that his children will be okay on the day of judgment. And obviously, we have to understand that in light of Jesus. The only reason that you and I will be okay is because of Christ. And his perfect righteousness given to you and to me. And because of his death on the cross in our place. But as the psalmist paints this picture of the righteous man or the righteous woman, what he does is he paints a picture of a beautiful, thriving tree. Look at verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. And its leaves does not wither. The healthy and thriving tree represents the Christian who is meditating and thinking upon God's word day in and day out. That's what the psalmist is telling us. Think about it. This tree here, for example, in verse 3, is doing exactly what it was intended to do. It has all the right soil, all the right nutrients in it. It's planted by a stream of water, so it's getting all the water that it needs to grow forth into a healthy, thriving tree. It's producing good fruit. It's a beautiful thing when things work the way they're supposed to work. How much of our lives do we spend trying to fix things to get them back to the place where they're working the way they're supposed to work? That's a result of the fall. That's not the way it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be that things work the way that they're supposed to work, that they were designed to work, just like that tree. The same is true of you and I. As Christians, we were designed to know God and to walk in His ways. That's what we were designed to do. And as we do that, as we do that, as we meditate on God's Word, we are like that tree planted by those streams of water, Bearing fruit in good season. Our leaves are not withering. The text says that we, we will be prosperous in all that we do. Now this doesn't mean that everything we touch turns to gold. As our brother reminded us, we will face hardships. We will face trials, persecution, calamity. You name it, we're told to expect that. But we will experience prosperity as God defines prosperity. Not as we define prosperity or want prosperity to be defined. And so the opposite is also true. If we look at our lives, for example, and we say, why am I not bearing the fruit that I, I, I know I'm supposed to be bearing? When I look at the fruit of the Spirit, why am I not more a patient man? Why am I not more a kind woman? Well, could it be that we are malnourished? Could it be that we're not getting enough intake of God's word? That our diet is too rich in worldly pleasures and pursuits? Maybe it's too much time spent watching TV. Maybe it's uh, too much time using Amazon Prime or Netflix. Maybe it's too much time on the Xbox or the PlayStation. Maybe it's too much time playing basketball or working out at the gym. Whatever it may be, these things are not bad things in and of themselves. These are gifts from the Lord. 
But many times what these things do is they, they take our mind off of God. We start worshiping the thing in and of itself and forget about the one who gave it to us. And we got to put those things away for a period of time and say, you know what? I'm focusing on God and His Word. I'm meditating on God and His Word because I want to be that tree that is strong and, and vital and producing the fruit that He's supposed to be. It's something for us to think about. But as we start to come to a close here in Psalm 1, there's something that we need to explain just a little bit further. Something that can easily be misunderstood. Maybe in looking at this psalm, it seems pretty simple. In the sense that kind of A plus B equals C. What I mean by that is that it seems, for example, that this could be seen as very legalistic or very works-based. Walk in the ways of the righteous and you will prosper. Walk in the ways of the wicked and you will perish. Seems simple. And while on the surface those things are true, we must understand Psalm 1 in light of the rest of the Bible. We must understand Psalm 1, how it relates to Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection. No one verse of scripture can just be plucked out, as it were, and used to say whatever we want to say. Because we know, for example, that none of us can carry out Psalm 1 perfectly. We look at Psalm 1 and we know that even if we try for five minutes, that we are not going to carry out that psalm perfectly. We are not going to walk in God's ways. We're not going to meditate on His Word. Something's going to happen. It's impossible. But you know what? There is only one person who has ever lived out Psalm 1 perfectly. And who was that? Jesus. The Sunday school answer, right? Jesus. Jesus is the only one who has lived out that perfectly happy, blessed life that Psalm 1 is talking about. He is the one who perfectly embodies the righteous man that we hear about in Psalm 1. He did that for us so we didn't have to do it. He did that for us so that we could be free from our sin. He did that so that we could be free from the law. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't need to follow God's law and His commandments. We know that's our sanctification. That once we become Christians, we are growing to be more and more like Jesus each and every day. By God's help. As the Holy Spirit helps us. As we meditate on God's Word. But we won't do that perfectly. Only Jesus has. And so as we seek to live out this perfectly blessed life, what we need to do is we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. As Hebrews 12 says, the author and the perfecter of our faith. He has run this race already, and he has done it perfectly to the T. That's the only way that you and I can run the race that's set before us. Only way that you and I can run the race of the ways of the righteous is through fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And as we do, as we meditate on God's Word, we will begin, and increasingly so, experience this blessed and happy life, walking in the ways of the righteous, just as we were designed to do. And so, as we begin our study of the book of Psalms, my prayer is that we would do so fixing our eyes on Jesus, 
in the ways of the righteous that the rest of the psalms will kind of unpack for us. That's why this is a very good psalm to begin the whole Psalter, as it were, in our study on the book of Psalms. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Your word is perfect. It is more desirable than the, the best foods on this earth or the, the most pleasure that we can get or the more, most money that we can make. Your word is better than all those things. God, we pray for a, a hunger to uh, study your word, to think on it, to meditate, to talk to it about, uh, talk about it with others. God, we pray that through your word you would transform us slowly and yet steadily into the people that you want us to be, the people that you saved us to be. God, we know that we need your help. If left on our own, we will have no chance. And so, Jesus, we pray, work in us that which is pleasing to you in your sight. We pray this for our good and for your glory alone. In Jesus' name.